All right, good evening, everybody. We're going to get started tonight. Um, go ahead and take your Bibles and open up to Ephesians chapter 4. And while you're opening up to Ephesians chapter 4, I just wanted to make mention of a couple things. So tonight we're going to be talking about our last letter of the TULIP acronym. Um, and then we we're going to have a couple lessons to finish out this series on, on Calvinism. But I'd like to finish in a different way. So in the back, I got Matt sitting there on the back row on the way out. Hey, Matt. <laughs> that was like a half-hearted wave. Anyway, um, but there's the wooden box that we typically use for our question and answer. And so Tim Finley is going to help to pass out the uh, note cards. And so if you have a question or you think you're going to have a question related to Calvinism, we have gone through so much information about Calvinism that there are, there's bound to be, I mean, several questions. Like I almost fear to tell you to write down questions because I feel like it's probably never going to end. But I want to do that because I feel like this would be a great way to finish out the series is to have a Q&A related to Calvinism. And I wanted to have some questions prepared ahead of time, as well as taking questions on those evenings as well, if there's any follow-up questions related to it, similar to how we would do it during the summer, which we're planning on doing that again this summer. But if you think that you have a question, or you already have one, or you'd like to have a note card to think about this week, go ahead and raise your hand, and Tim can pass those out. So go ahead and do that right now, if, you, if you've got that. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to raise your hand. <laughs> Yes. Hi, because Tim is blind. So pray for Tim, because <laughs> that's a problem. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. All right, so make sure to keep your hand up, so that way you can get a note card. And uh, if you change your mind by the end of our lesson today, um, those note cards are going to be back there by the wooden box as well. You can just pick one up on your way out after prayer meeting is over. Is there anybody else that would like to get a note card? Anybody else? Okay. All right. Awesome. Okay. So if you'd like to just pick up a note card, you can do that. If you think of a question during the week and you want to email that to me, that's totally fine, or shoot me a text or something like that, that would be A-okay. A-okay. All right. So your Bible's over to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's go ahead and pray first and then we can dive into our intro and then talk about our last letter for uh, this acronym. Father, thank you, for, thank you for your word. We are, um, we are so grateful to be able to have a book. And in your word, you have clearly laid out that it is the mind of Christ. And what a privilege and what an honor it is to be able to open it up each day and and I know that it's been just a really great reminder to me over the course of this study of, of how important the words of God are. And, and I've always known they've been important, but you just really impressed over my heart even more uh, the importance of your words and the privilege that we have to be able to open up your word and to behold them with our eyes each and every day, uh, to be able to meditate upon them and to interact with them as your spirit teaches us the things from your word. And so I pray, God, that these things would be um, deeply settled inside of our hearts uh, that it would change our perspective on the way that we see everything uh, when it comes to our interactions with people in this world and discipleship relationships and ministry things that we're doing and, and missions trips that we're involved in and all these things. God, we need your word. We, we cannot do this work without you. And in this world, there are so many Christians, there's so many churches that are attempting to do this work apart from your word. And they're making up their own gods in their heart and mind and it has nothing to do with who you actually are. And so, Father, help us tonight again to behold your, your words, to, to stand in awe of them, and to abandon 
our thoughts and opinions and adopt what you have clearly said. It's very difficult to do if we're not in the practice of doing it. And, and so maybe there's someone here tonight that, is, that uh, doesn't really um, see themselves as being out of practice and they need to be in practice. God, I pray that you teach us tonight. Uh, you are, are so good to us to meet us right where we are and to help us to uh, have a relationship with you first of all and then to walk with you and to be with you and to experience life with you. And, and we are so thankful that you are that kind of a God and that you are, are near to every one of us. And so I pray, God, that we decide to be near to you, that we would align our hearts with you tonight, and that we would um, just have a deep desire to magnify you and glorify you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So over the past four lessons, we've, we've, gone, we've gone on this journey together through the TULIP uh, acronym. And tonight we land on the letter P, which stands for Perseverance of the Saints. Um, but also, many of the, propo- the proponents of Calvinism and Reformed theology, they would like to call it preservation of the saints. Uh, that's what they like to reword it as, but uh, history has really proven this acronym to really hold tight, so they confess perseverance of the saints, but if they were to correct it, they would say preservation of the saints, and we'll talk about that. But before we dive into the details of this particular doctrine and what the Bible says about this doctrine— I want us to be reminded of the overarching truth that God has really been teaching all of us and really resonating with all of us through his word, and that is this, that we are to believe the Bible. You know, the more I think about it, the more I realize that this study on Calvinism is not necessarily about Calvinism. It is, and we're talking about Calvinism, but really this is a study on learning to believe what your Bible says. That's really what we're doing. And we are told by God, and we should be confident to believe every single word. Most Christians run the risk of being taken out of the work of the Lord and their faith of being made shipwreck because they don't know how to believe their Bible. Pastors and leaders are not doing their job to teach their people what the Bible says and how to know it, how to believe it, and how to fall in love with it. And on a very personal level. And as a result, false doctrines like Calvinism wreak havoc on Christians, churches, and denominations as false teachers disarm and disable believers as they wrest the scriptures. That's the reality that we're facing. And we're going to talk more about this in in the weeks to come because I want to spend some time very specifically on that particular topic, on earnestly contending for the faith. But this is what this study is about. And and, and I hope that at this point that you, you can really agree with me on that. Because I think that we've laid out a lot of different things. And even as we've gone through every single letter of the acronym, it is clear that what the Bible says is very different than what the doctrines of Calvinism teach. And so we would do well to learn how to believe the Bible and to gain confidence in it. You need to have confidence in your Bible. You should be able to open up the scriptures and to be taught of God for yourselves. And that can be a process. And I understand that. That's one of the reasons why we love discipleship in our church. Because when you go through discipleship, you can learn on a very practical level how to believe the Bible for yourself. It is possible. And it's amazing to me that we live in a culture, especially a Christian culture, where that is a foreign concept. Like, how can you be a Christian and not know the Bible? But yet, that's normal today. And that's why we're in the mess that we're in today. And, and just think how God feels about that. 
I mean, if, if, if the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth, and yet the individual members of that church do not know their Bible, then we're in serious trouble. You know, I had a great example of this even over the past weekend. We were at a family wedding, and I had the opportunity to share just a short little five-minute devotional on what a biblical marriage is. And all I did was just share something very, very simple out of the book of Genesis on relationships. But it was from the Bible. And you could tell that the Bible was being spoken and the people were starving for it. And these are people that are churched. I was shocked. But I need to remember, that's how it is out there. That's the state of the Christian world out there today. And so it helps me because then I need to start thinking, maybe I don't need to be as offended at Christians and just pity them in a godly manner and take advantage of opportunities to see if they're actually a seeker after truth. And if they are, then I can minister to them. That's what we need to do. This world can make us so frustrated on so many different fronts. But when was the last time that you were frustrated and successfully accomplished God's will in your life? So we need to think differently. I need to think differently. And I know this study is a point of of just even turning in my own heart and mind of just things that I need to fine-tune and keep really on the forefront of my heart with the Lord as we keep going through some of these false doctrines that can frustrate me to no end. (laughs) But we need to believe the Bible, and we need to love people and take advantage of those opportunities. Okay, so you're open to Ephesians 4, and I wanted you to see this because this is exactly what Paul said was going to occur, and then we're going to get into the details of perseverance of the saints. Verse 11 talking about the church and how God has gifted the church and equipped the church, it says, and he, God, gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So I'm going to pause there for a second. Pastors and teachers are responsible for perfecting the saints. And the perfecting that they're supposed to do should produce, in verse 12, the work of the ministry, that is the work of the Lord, that is evangelism and discipleship, where you're reproducing reproducers and reproducing reproducing churches. And when you're doing that properly and saints are being equipped properly, then you're going to edify the body of Christ. That means it is going to grow stronger, that they're going to be more unified, they're going to be more mature, able to reproduce properly. And that's what he explains in verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature, there's maturity, of the fullness of Christ. To what end? That we, verse 14, henceforth be no more children. So there's growth. So we grow to the point where we're no more children because children are tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So this tells you the state of the church today. The state of art of the church, especially in the United States, and frankly, probably all around the world, is that they are children. If they're legitimate born-again believers, they are children, and they're being tossed around to and fro by false doctrine that's being perpetuated by men who are waiting for the opportunity to deceive them. Now, whether they realize it or not, that's a whole different topic of discussion. 
because that gets down to the motives of their heart, and frankly, only God knows that. But what we can know for sure is that our job as born-again believers and in this place is to equip and to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry. And there's nothing that will mature us more than doing the work of the Lord, and we will be edified as a body, and we will know God's will because we're doing God's will. And so I was just reminded of that before we head into some false doctrine territory that we need to believe the Bible. Above anything else, we need to believe the Bible. And it would do us well to keep our nose in the book, our heart in the book, and all about the book. We have to. And that will help us be more equipped to take on anything that may come our way, whether it's Calvinism or just a practical thing that you're struggling with or anything else. That will be the most help out of it all. So let's tackle letter P, perseverance of the saints. All right, so once again, as our pattern has been, we're going to have the Calvinists, the Reformed theologians, the doctrines of grace holders, I do not like that term, but that's what they call themselves, and let them define what perseverance of the saints actually is. Now, with perseverance of the saints, what I wanted to really uh, make it a point, at least tonight, and if your study sheet says aka effectual grace, you can, you can cross that out, that's a typo. Um, but what I wanted to really make it a point tonight to talk about is that this one, I feel, is very, very deceitful. Now, they all are deceitful from the Calvinistic perspective, but I feel like this one is very deceitful because when you get into the details of perseverance of the saints, it's going to sound a lot like eternal security. And it is not. It is not. And we will talk about the difference between the two, but it will sound like it's eternal security, and it's because they start to use verses that preach and teach eternal security to support their doctrine of perseverance of the saints. And you'll see why and what I'm talking about here in a minute. So first of all, John MacArthur, beloved John MacArthur, here's what he's got to say. So for one of his sermons on perseverance of the saints, he says this, true believers will persevere in faith to the end. No one falls through the cracks in the process of salvation. Whom the Father chooses, he draws. Whom he draws, he draws to Christ. Whomever is drawn to Christ comes and when he comes, Christ receives him, keeps him, and raises him on the last day. It is not just that we are eternally secure. It is that we are eternally secure because our faith perseveres. If keeping your salvation was up to you, you'd never be saved. Your human faith can't save you. Your human faith can't keep you. Therefore, you need a faith that is not human, a faith that is supernatural that has to come from God. The faith to believe the gospel in the beginning came from God, and it is an enduring faith that always believes. Now, you've got to be discerning while you're reading through that. And hopefully at this point, we've been exercised enough that you're starting to see some of this, because you can see how this goes hand in hand with the rest of the other letters of Calvinism. God is the one that has to save you because you're totally depraved. And so that faith that he gives you to believe is the faith that keeps you saved all the way to the end. That's what they believe. All right, next one. This one's from R.C. Sproul. The New Testament teaches us that it is the Holy Spirit who alone raises from the dead, and he raises us unto eternal life. The purpose of God's election is to bring his people safely to heaven. What he starts, he promises to finish. Not only does he initiate the Christian life, but the Holy Spirit is the sanctifier, the one who convicts, and the helper who is there to help in our preservation. My confidence in my preservation is not in my ability to persevere, 
My confidence rests in the power of Christ to sustain me with his grace. It is confidence that by the power of his intercession for us, he is going to bring us safely through. So again, you can see it. But again, very deceitful in how he says it. And we'll talk about some of these intricacies in a minute. And then I wanted to end with John Piper's because he pulls us from the Bethlehem Elder Affirmation of Faith, which is the church that he pastored for a while. And this is one that kind of baffles me a little bit, but you'll see it as we go through it. We believe that the sanctification, which comes by the Spirit through faith, is imperfect and incomplete in this life. Although slavery to sin is broken and sinful desires are progressively weakened by the power of a superior satisfaction in the glory of Christ, yet there remain remnants of corruption in every heart that give rise to irreconcilable war and a call for vigilance in the lifelong fight of faith. We believe that all who are justified will win this fight, not be spared the fight, just guaranteed the victory. They will persevere in faith and never surrender to the enemy of their souls. This perseverance is the promise of the new covenant obtained by the blood of Christ and worked in us by God himself, yet not so as to diminish, but only to empower and encourage our vigilance, so that we may say in the end, I have fought the good fight, but it was not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Now, John Piper goes as far as to say this, and, and I was baffled, but he openly preaches this and teaches this, and he's given plenty of ammunition out on the internet to this end. But he goes so far as to say this. When he counsels people, he will tell people, like he mentioned that there was a couple that was having an affair, and the one woman would not stop sleeping with other men. And so what he did is he said, if you don't stop sleeping with other men, you are going to go to hell. He would make statements like that to try to scare them because he would believe, according to his doctrine, that if you keep this behavior up, it is not possible that you're saved and that you will go to hell. Is that confusing to anybody? Okay, it should be because it's very odd. It's very odd. And he says it's very successful in counseling, which I'm like, okay, all right. I don't know much about counseling, but I do know that. Like, I wouldn't be doing that. But to his point, he's saying, if you keep this behavior up, you're proving that you're not part of the elect. So get your act together. Okay, we're going to come back to that at the end because that gives you an indication of what they actually believe, but they will never say it. So this is, can be very, very confusing, but they're saying that it is not possible for someone who is born again to be completely overtaken by sin to the point where they completely abandon God and walk away from everything and never return. And upon their death, they were actually not a part of the elect to begin with. That is what they mean by perseverance of the saints. If God called you and you are sealed and that moment of irresistible grace has overtaken you and now you belong to him and you are part of the elect, it is not possible for you to fall away. You might have a small times in your life, little seasons where you might have rebelled, but you'll always come back. That's what they would say. So it's very strange, but it sounds like eternal security, but it's not. Hopefully you're getting the flavor of it a little bit. So here's the deal. I got a, I got a video, James White. He is a, um, another guy that is a huge proponent of Calvinism. If you spend any time in Calvinistic circles, you'll be able to see this guy. This guy reeks of arrogance. You'll be able to see it whenever you see the video. It's only two minutes long, and I already have a hard time with him. 
But in this video, he starts to talk about a concept that I have to explain before you see the video. And he explains synergism versus monergism. Now, this is, again, another theological term that most people don't use, except for if you're in these theological circles. So synergism means that you and God did something for your salvation. Monergism is Calvinism, where God alone did it. You had nothing to do with it. And they would argue that synergism is Arminianism, that you believe you can lose your salvation because you had a part in it, therefore you can also lose it. So that's the most simple way that I can explain it. So when he says it, hopefully you'll be able to understand it uh, a little bit better from what he talks about. But here is James White talking about perseverance of the saints. Eternal security. Well, you know, that's not my favorite terminology at all. I certainly do not believe in eternal security in the uh, non-reformed understanding of once saved, always saved, got your ticket punched, do, go do whatever you want, et cetera, et cetera. The Reformed understanding is that Christ will infallibly save those given to him by the Father, and that means that saving faith will endure. So the perseverance, preservation or perseverance of the saints. Preservation would be the divine side. Perseverance would be how we would see it in life. Uh, but it's the result of the fact that the Father has given a people to the Son, and it's his will that the Son lose none of them and he won't lose any of them. So this, it's, it's really, the fundamental issue is, is can Jesus save perfectly? And only Calvinists believe that Jesus can save perfectly. Only Calvinists believe that. Oh, stop being so angry and just listen to what I'm saying. There is a difference between saying that Jesus can make salvation available and Jesus can save perfectly. Those are not the same statements. And if you are any kind of synergist, any kind of synergist at all, a simple synergist, there's only a, one thing you have to do, or a complex synergist, there's a whole bunch of stuff you have to do through a sacramental system. If you're any kind of synergist, you cannot believe that Jesus is a perfect savior because to be a savior is not simply to make something hypothetically possible it's to actually accomplish it and so when the father's will for the son is he's lose none of those given to him only calvinists believe he does that just a fact because even i i know what you're thinking i know your system i do listen you're thinking no 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 Jesus saves those the father gives because the father looks in the future and sees who's going to believe in him it still depend upon their belief Jesus, there is no human being on the planet that Jesus can save perfectly, that their free will is not the deciding factor in whether we can do it or not. Because you're a synergist. That's the whole point. <laughs> okay, so, the biggest issue that I have with that whole thing is that you're telling me that it's not possible. It is not possible for God to author salvation and to say within the authoring of salvation that I'm going to freely offer it so whosoever responds will give it and it is all the work of God. Like, I don't, I don't understand that. It is all the work of God. I had nothing to do with my salvation. The only thing that I did is that I humbled myself and said, I am a sinner that needs to be saved, and I cannot save myself. Lord, save me. That is not, that is not what he believes whatsoever. The God of the Bible, 
which is not his God, by the way. The God of the Bible says very clearly, very clearly, he made the way. And it is my responsibility to respond. But that does not mean that I did anything to earn it. Why is my response something that earns eternal salvation? That's ridiculous. And this whole concept of, of, of love, they don't understand love at all. And that's why when it comes to the, the, one of the books that, that is, is incredible about Calvinism is what love is this? Because when you start to get into the heart of Calvinism, you find out they don't understand love whatsoever. And this is why most Calvinists, most, are the most unloving, cold, hateful people that I have ever met in my entire life. Because they can't. If they are sound with their doctrine, they do not know how to love in a biblical fashion. Because their God does not love in a biblical fashion. And so that just, it just angers me. That angers me. But that kind of gives you a little window into that guy's world and what he believes. So what does all this mean? What does all of this mean? When God gave his elect the faith needed to receive salvation, it is a supernatural faith that will persevere unto the end. The salvation of God's elect is not dependent on their free will, but on his covenantal promise to keep and preserve them. That is what they say by perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints. Now, as far as the alleged scripture support, we have gone through some of these, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on these, but I, I did want to mention uh, these ones specifically. Romans 8, 29 through 30, John 10, 26 through 30, John 17. And I'm going to touch on, on Romans uh, specifically just to show you an example. But in John 10, this is where you heard the language that, um, that the Father, he will lose none of them. They use that phrase over and over again. They say the same thing in John 17 because in, in Jesus' uh, prayer unto God the Father, he says that keep them, keep them that I, that I lose none except for the son of perdition. But remember the context of John 17. He's praying about his disciples specifically the 11 that were going to go and turn the world upside down. And that's what he was praying about. But what I want you to see about these, these verses is that all three of these passages we examined already, but what you see with this doctrine is that it's built upon itself. And I've already mentioned it a little bit, that we are so totally depraved that God unconditionally elected, predestined, called us individually unto salvation through his limited atonement. Those that are truly called will respond through the Spirit's irresistible grace apart from their own free will to freely receive the supernatural faith from God that saves them and keeps them persevering in faith unto the end. That's what they would believe. If we were to put this all together, that's exactly what they believe. And now that you understand perseverance of the saints, now when you read Romans 8, you can totally see it as a Calvinist. For whom he did foreknow. Now for them foreknow means that he called, that he chose, that he unconditionally elected. But that is not what foreknow means. We've already talked about that. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, which they equate with salvation that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. So that justification unto glorification is the perseverance of the saints. So they always jump to this passage, to these verses, because these are the ones that most encapsulate in their interpretation the whole acronym of TULIP. But we already gone through this verse plenty of times. For whom he did foreknow, who he did know beforehand. 
Those, that's what foreknow actually means. Those that God knew ahead of time, he also did predestinate to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. It does not say predestinate to salvation. Predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. So that scripture is teaching very clearly those that he knew would receive Christ as their savior, those he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what that verse is talking about. The moment that you get saved, God is already predestined that your life, the end of your life is that you will look like Jesus Christ. This is why the Spirit of God moves in and permanently indwells you and convicts you like crazy when you start speaking and behaving in an ungodly manner. One of the greatest evidences that the Spirit of God exists in your life is that when you step outside of the will of God, He convicts you about it. When you open up the scriptures, God says, hey, buddy, this is not right in your life. You're, you're, you're wrong in this. You need to get corrected on this. That's why people that are genuinely saved, they can endure sound doctrine. Because when they hear sound doctrine, the Spirit of God convicts them through that sound doctrine to change their behavior. God has predestinated you and I as born-again believers to be conformed in the image of His Son. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, now, will be us that are born again. Them he also called. Of course, it goes hand in hand. We've already talked about that as well. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. That is eternal security. That is not preservation of the saints or perseverance of the saints. That is not. That is not. That is not. And so they go to those passages like crazy. I don't want to spend too much time on them because I've got several others that I want to make sure that we spend time hitting. So the next set of verses, Jude 1 all the way through Philippians 1, 6. We're going to hit these uh, just beat by beat all the way through. I got them up on the screen. Jude one twenty four. Now, unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Now, they take this and say, see, that's what it teaches. This is eternal security. This is eternal security. God is able... God is able to keep you and I from falling. So that means, on a practical level, who is responsible for your sinful choices? We are. But is it possible then that you could live your entire life in rebellion to God and be one of the most miserable Christians on the planet, be genuinely born again, and you come to the end of your life and you stand before God and He still present you faultless? Yes, absolutely, because your salvation is not based upon your obedience, practically speaking. It's based upon your obedience to the gospel and your decision to receive the gospel. But even someone that lives their entire life, their entire life in utter rebellion against God that is genuinely born again, they will be able to stand before him faultless, not because of them, but because of him. And because of that, with that glory and exceeding joy. Every single one of us, every single one of us, no matter how we've lived as a born-again believer, will be able to stand before God with glory and exceeding joy. And you and I know that we don't deserve this. We don't deserve to be presented faultless. This is eternal security. And I hate how they take verses like this and they rob it. They redefine it so that way they try to convince people into their false doctrine of Calvinism through the back door. That's what they do all the time. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, very similar. 
And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. They take this verse and they see, see, this teaches perseverance of the saints. No, it teaches eternal security for the same reason that Jude 124 does. God is able. Now, he wants you out of your own free will to be obedient. So that way your spirit and soul and body can be sanctified and set apart and continually glorifying God on this earth in your life. But if that doesn't happen, he is faithful and he will preserve you to be blameless on that day. That is what this verse teaches. They say it teaches otherwise. Similarly, 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. Who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. They take verse 9 and they use that for unconditional election as well, which is not what that's talking about. But think about this from the perspective of the, of the Corinthians. If there is anybody that needed to hear this, it was the people of Corinth. They were so messed up, so messed up on their doctrine, practically, morally, in so many different areas, that Paul could at least say, at his point of encouragement, God will confirm you unto the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because they had a whole book's worth of things that they were not blameless about. And he was saying that right up front. But again, they robbed that verse as well. And then, of course, one of my favorites, Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. They use all these verses in the same vein to try to purport perseverance of the saints, but it is not teaching that. It is teaching eternal security for the born-again believer, for the born-again believer. Now, the next point, Luke 22, this is another one they use, and I want to make sure to at least mention this before moving on, is that in Luke 22, they will use this verse, and I'll just read it here and then I'll explain it. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So they use this verse in this sense. They would say, Simon Peter was about to go through some very heavy temptation. He denied the Lord three times. But because of Jesus' prayer in verse 32, where he specifically prayed that your faith would fail not, then Simon Peter was able to persevere to the end. That's what they would say. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. Because think about this. Now, we can say, and, I, and I, Pastor Thomas said this as well, how many prayers of Jesus always get answered? All of them, for sure. However, are there not some prayers that Jesus prays about your life very specifically, about your obedience in certain situations that you think God really wants you to be obedient in, and then you're saying that you have no choice in the matter? So if Jesus says, you know, Father, I want Stephen to make this decision. This is going to be a tough decision that he's going to face. But now, and I want him, I don't want his faith to fail. I want him to be able to come through on this and be stronger on the other side. Because Jesus would pray that prayer for me in that circumstance, am I not able to disobey God? I am. I am able. Now, 
This goes back to the will of God like we talked about last week. I am totally able to go against the will of God in my life. I mean, think about this from Paul's perspective. In the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit himself said, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go. Paul's like, I'm going. And God's like, okay. Now God still was able to use it, and he did some amazing things through it. But that is not what God wanted for him. But God gave Paul the freedom in this relationship between him and God the Father to make a decision that he felt was best to represent God. I can't tell you if Paul made a mistake there or not. I can't. This is like one of those mystery you know, parts of the Bible that just like in my relationship with God, I know there are things that God wanted me to do that I did not do, and I made a mess of it. And then God turned around and was like, okay, hold on, let me clean this up, but you, you got to be humble. I'm like, oh, okay. And, and this is what he did. And he made something beautiful out of it, something that I wouldn't even have imagined. And I'm so thankful because God is so good to us. And this is a great example in the same vein, in the same line of thinking, that the God of the Calvinists is so small, so small. Our God, the God of the Bible, is so big and so powerful that even if Simon Peter and his faith would have failed, God still would have accomplished his plan. Now, thankfully, he didn't, and his faith didn't fail. It failed three times. And it probably failed a little bit thereafter. And what's the conclusion? And I've got in parentheses John 21. When his relationship with God was restored. I mean, I think about that all the time. Jesus had to, to do some very specific things to grab the heart of Peter again. What God did in that moment in John 21, and you'll take, take a look at it later. It's so good. It's so good. He ends up says, okay, I know Peter's going to go fishing. And when he goes fishing, I'm going to be on the shore, and I'm going to do all this stuff. And so this is what he sets up. And then Jesus is on the shore, and he's like, hey, have you caught any fish? And of course, they didn't catch any fish because God orchestrated they wouldn't catch any fish. And he did that on purpose because then what happened was he says, hey, why don't you cast your net on the other side of the boat? <laughs> and when they did that, they engulfed such a catch of fish that they couldn't haul it in. And immediately... John knew that it was Jesus. And then Peter heard John's, it's the Lord. And then he knew that it was the Lord. Why? Because that same thing happened in John chapter 4. The exact same event happened. And so God did everything in his power to restore Peter. And so God knew that he had to recreate the event where Peter dropped to his knees and said, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter was so far gone in his relationship with God that God had to bring him back to that point where he knew that the Messiah was God and he gave up everything in order to follow him. And that created the open door for his restoration with his Savior. So I look at this and I'm like, his faith did fail. It did. But then Jesus came back around and he created the situation in order to bring his faith back back because God needed him. He wanted him. That is amazing. Calvinists do not believe in that kind of a God. They can't because everything is predetermined. Everything. Everything. And so that's where those verses land, and they rob those two, and I want to make sure to set those ones straight. All right, so the next verses that I want you to be able to see 
And I'm only going to be able to go to a couple of them, but I want you to be able to see this one. Go to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. They do this. This is another example of how they rob God's word from God's people. But in Jeremiah 32, I want you to see this one. So one of the things that Calvinists do is they're also called, uh, they all believe in what's called replacement theology. And replacement theology is very simple. They believe that the church has replaced Israel. God is done with the nation of Israel. He's never going to use them again. They failed. It's over. And so as a result then, they freely go into passages of the Old Testament and even into the Gospels. Because remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is still Old Testament economy. If you're going to rightly divide your Bible, you need to know dispensations. And you got to know that a new dispensation of the church age did not begin until Jesus Christ died on the cross. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is still Old Testament. And so they take verses from Jeremiah, and I've got the other one in your study sheet, Mark 13, 13, which I'll explain in a minute. And they take these verses and they apply it unto themselves. Jeremiah 32, take a look at verse 40. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. The Calvinists would say, see, right there, perseverance of the saints. God, when a person is born again, he gives them a new heart and he puts his fear inside of their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Okay. This is not what this is teaching. Jeremiah is a book of Israel's rebellion. They are rebelling against God on every single front to the point where God has to whoop them with another nation and take them into captivity. And he is prophesying of a future time where God is going to restore the nation of Israel. And when God restores the nation of Israel and he saves the nation of Israel, and this is what is explained in in, uh, Romans chapter 11 as well, very clearly in the book of Romans, that when he restores the nation of Israel, at that point in time, as a physical nation of Israel, God will put his fear in their hearts and he will give them a brand new heart and they will never depart away from God ever again. And if you'd read the Old Testament and actually just believe what it says, this would not be rocket science. But they don't. They do not. I don't know how in the world that as a Calvinist, you can, you can read the Old Testament and not understand that God is not done with the nation of Israel. He speaks so much. He spends so many chapters talking about, I'm not done with my people. I'm not done with my people. I'm going to restore them again. Wherever they're captive, I'm going to bring them back in, back into their own land. But this is where Calvinists go awry because they have no understanding of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. They don't get the fact that when it comes to circumcision that God promised it to Abraham in their flesh. Very specifically in Genesis, he says, this is a covenant in your flesh. That with the physical nation of Israel, I am going to build a physical kingdom. God is not done. He has not successfully accomplished those prophecies yet, and he is not done with the nation of Israel. How else do you explain the existence of the nation of Israel? They are a flat-out miracle. They should not exist. They are the only nation on the planet that ceased to exist and never became fully assimilated into other cultures and countries and then were brought back into their own land again. That has never, never happened, nor will it ever happen except for God's people. 
Their existence alone proves that the Old Testament is to be interpreted literally and that the Calvinists are wrong. They do the same thing with Mark 13, 13. I'll just quote it real quick. With that one, they say, he that perseveres unto the end shall be saved. Okay, look at the context. When you look at Mark 13 and the parallel passage would be Matthew 24, it's the tribulation. And he's talking to the Jews and the nation of Israel. And do you not realize that any Jew that makes it to the very end will actually be saved? That's what the Bible teaches. And we're not talking about being born again. Being born again, that's a whole different ballgame. We're going to get to that in a second. We're talking about them as a nation are going to be rescued by their Messiah. And they will be reestablished. And they will be settled in their homeland with Jesus on the throne in Jerusalem. They rip it out of their context. All right, 1 Peter 1 and 2 Peter 1, we don't have time to get to, but you can read those things and you can follow the same line of thinking. And so I wish we had time to get to those, but I want to get to letter, letter C. I want to get to the actual scriptural truth in order for us to end this thing out because it's worth looking at what the Bible actually says, not what other people says that it says. I always love this point uh, way more than the others. So what does the Bible actually say? Oh, I love these verses. First of all, when a sinner hears and freely chooses to believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are born again. They are sealed with the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We've seen this a couple times before, but it is worth going to again. Ephesians chapter 1. Eternal security is a biblical doctrine because when a sinner hears the gospel and they choose to believe it, they are sealed, they are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And God calls it the Holy Spirit of promise unto the day of redemption. Ephesians 1, verse 13. In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. The moment that a sinner hears the gospel and they make a choice to believe the gospel, the Spirit of God moves in and seals you. And he calls it in verse 14, the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Now, we are not fully redeemed yet in a practical sense. We are, as far as God's perspective is concerned, we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians talks about that very clearly. But our redemption is not complete yet until we receive our glorified bodies. And so even those saints that have passed on before us, they are currently in heaven with the Lord today, but their redemption is not final yet. And I think about all my loved ones that have passed on and that they're with the Lord and they're with him and, and in his hands and in his care, but there's coming a day that they're gonna receive their glorified body. And on that day is the redemption of the purchased possession. And so until that day comes, if you have believed the gospel, you are born again, you are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And what God seals, no one can unseal. I can't unseal myself. And we are sealed until the day of redemption. Look at chapter 4 and verse 30. Ephesians 4, verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. When you receive that Spirit of God and He moves inside, you are sealed until that final day of redemption. 
And so that's the first thing that should give us great, great hope. Secondly, the born-again believer is a brand new creature in Christ and adopted, adopted as a son of God. No longer Jew or Gentile. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6 verse 15. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. This is what 2 Corinthians 5, 17 talks about. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The moment you hear the gospel and you believe the gospel, you are a brand new creature. So new that according to Galatians 6, 15, that you are not Jewish and you are not Gentile. So, Marshall, you're no longer a Jew. Sorry to burst your bubble. Just as I am no longer a Gentile. Now, are you Jewish? Yes. Am I a Gentile? Yes. But no, we're not. You and I are, are, are one and the same. We are a brand new creature in Christ. Brand new. And that's why the Bible talks about there's three people groups. The Jews, the Gentiles, and the church of God. And the moment that you are born again through the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God moves in, seals you, you are a brand new creature, and you're no longer a Jew, you're no longer a Gentile, you are now a born-again believer in his body, the church. The church. And you're adopted as a son of God. I, I am fascinated by the adoption process. And Frowmans, you know this firsthand. I was working with a guy at Schwab, and I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. He adopted a little girl from China. And she was older. And they knew that adopting an older girl was going to probably have some problems. There'd be some things, because she's been in these orphanages for a long time. But they went over, and they had a heart for this girl. And they're like, okay, we want to do it. And so they go through all the process, and they get all the approvals and everything. And so finally, finally, they get the birth certificate. And when you get the birth certificate after you've adopted a child, the birth certificate is written in such a way that it is as if that child has always been in your family. It is beautiful. So that means the moment that you were saved, the moment that you were sealed by the Spirit of God, it's as if you've always been there. As if you've always been in God's family. That's why when the Bible teaches that we get an inheritance, Romans talks about how the, we get an inheritance with Christ. Are you kidding me? Why in the world would I share in the inheritance that belongs to Christ? I don't deserve a lick of it. I'm just thankful to be there and to be with him. And yet God looks at us as born-again believers as if we've always been there from the very beginning. That is incredible. That's why the Bible uses the term that we are adopted into the family of God. It is incredible. That's what happens at the moment of salvation. And that's why you can't lose it. You can't lose it because you're sealed. You can't lose it because you've been adopted as if you've always been there. When you're born again, tell me how you can get unborn. Figure that one out. I can't because it's not possible. Once you're born into God's family, you cannot be unborn out of God's family. And then lastly, as the sons of God, we can grieve and we can quench the Holy Spirit, but we cannot lose our salvation. We are joined unto the Lord as one spirit. This is one of my favorite verses on this topic, 1 Corinthians 6, 17. 
but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. So let's put all this together because I am fascinated by this. Like I, I, when I think about this and, and I think about my relationship with God, I mean, it, it causes me to just stand in awe and in wonder of the Lord. The moment that I admitted that I was a sinner and I knew that I needed a Savior, and I obeyed Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When I called upon him to save me, the Spirit of God moved in, and I'm now adopted. I'm now born again, but he didn't just move in. He permanently united with my dead spirit to make me alive. And it says, he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. So my dead spirit that, that belonged to me was the reason I was bound for hell. The Spirit of God came in and permanently united himself with my dead spirit. This is why the picture of the marriage is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because when Jesus says, two shall be one flesh, this is what he's talking about. It's a physical picture of what he wants spiritually with us. And the moment, the moment that we say yes and we enter into that covenant with God and he comes in, the two shall be made one. And in God's economy, you can't separate that ever again. How can you take one spirit and divide it back out so it's two individual spirits again? This is why God hates divorce. It was never in God's will for divorce to exist. If you were to study divorce in the scriptures, he says it exists because of your sins and things that are going on in your life and the practical outworking of all of it. You can go back to when he even instituted it in the law of Moses and all of that. But it was never in his heart. It's never anything that he wanted. It's something that he allowed to exist. Because in his economy, when, it, when this happens and you are permanently joined unto the Lord, that can't ever be undone again. How safe and secure we are in the hands of God. The moment that you choose to, to receive the gospel and to be born again. And this is why 1 John, we're going to end here. Go over to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3 and 1 John 5 are some of the most powerful verses in the scriptures talking about this fact. So 1 John chapter 3 first, and then we're going to end on chapter 5. First John 3, take a look at verse 19. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if, God, if our heart condemn us, if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence towards God. This relationship is so secure in God's economy and in the hands of God that even when my heart is condemning me, God is greater than my heart and he knows all things. He knows if I belong to him or not. He knows. That's what 1 Timothy even talks about. God knows them that are his. He knows that. This flies in the face of the Calvinistic doctrine because they would say, well, if your heart condemns you, then you're probably not even part of the elect to begin with. No, I serve a God that even if my heart condemns me and I go back to the scriptures and I say, have I? Because I've done this. I've struggled with the assurance of my salvation. Growing up in church, being saved when I was five years old, I struggled a lot with this in my life. And so here's what I did. I had to put aside how I felt, my heart, and I needed to go back to the Bible. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God come in the flesh. Do I believe that? 
Yes, I believe that. And it says that when he died on the cross, that he died for my sins, and not mine only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Do I believe that? Yes, I believe that with all my heart. And that through him, he is my peace. That he is the only kind of peace that I can have. And I can be justified with God and set apart with him and adopted. I believe that. And it's through him and him alone. It has nothing to do with my works, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Absolutely, I believe that. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yeah, I believe that. And I did that. Okay. Well, then I'm born again. And I trust what God's word says about my state. And so I might feel like I'm not, that I don't belong to God. But what do I believe? Do I believe what this says? And if I can explore that and say, no, I believe what the Bible says, well, then I've made that decision. And now I move forward with the Lord. And I'm telling you, that gives me more assurance than anything that my heart could feel. Because you can't manufacture assurance with God. Most of the time, assurance in my life was, or lack of assurance rather, is that I just wasn't being obedient. There was something in my life that was breaking the fellowship between me and God. That I wasn't spending time in God's word. That I wasn't spending time in prayer with him. That I wasn't making good godly decisions. I just had this conversation with my daughter because we were talking about some things. And I said, okay, well, you're struggling in your walk with God and your relationship with God. Okay, well, how often have you been getting God's words in your head and in your heart? Well, not as much as I should. Okay, well, how often are you praying to him and talking to him? Well, not that much. Okay, well, you need to spend more quality time with God because I will tell you every single time I've struggled in my Christian walk and I've struggled with my assurance is because my lack in the relationship between me and the Father. Because when I get in his word, he teaches me. He, he teaches me. And when I pray to him, I know he hears me because his word says it does. And then I get great assurance. And so these verses teach clearly that God is greater, greater than my heart, and he knows all things. Look at First John chapter 5, and we'll end here. This is another one that flies in the face of Calvinists. 1 John 5, verse 11. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. The Scriptures make it clear. How do you know you have eternal life? Well, do you have the Son? Do you have the Son? Do you? If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't know if you have the Son, then you don't have life. And these things are written that ye may know. And if you don't know, then believe on the name of the Son of God so you can know. These verses are so clear. Because here's why I wanted to end with these verses here. Calvinism and Reformed theology, in their most honest state, can never give you assurance of your salvation. Never. Never. It is not possible. 
It is not possible. I'll prove it in a second. Let's hit this conclusion paragraph, and then I'll prove it. Calvinism and Reformed theology argues that preservation of the saints is a sound biblical doctrine by reinterpreting verses supporting eternal security for born-again believers or by misapplying verses written to the nation of Israel. When they speak, it sounds like they are articulating eternal security, but they are simply following their doctrine to its logical conclusion. Mankind is totally depraved, so God must choose who will be saved. Those he chooses to save must persevere unto the end by the supernatural faith he forcefully gifted them. Yes, forcefully gifted them. The reality is the corrupt doctrine of Calvinism is no different than the corrupt doctrines of Arminianism, Catholicism, Charismatics, and any other works-based system of salvation. And here's the proof. How can you know that you are truly among the elect? How can you know? Because this is the common question among all Calvinists and anyone that struggles with it. How can I know that I'm among the elect? And of course, elect is equivalent with salvation. How can I know that I'm among the elect? The honest reformer will admit to you that you can never truly know that you are elect until you have passed on into eternity. It's not possible. Here's the reason. Well, isn't my heart deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? To the end that I could have been deceiving myself the whole time that I belong to the Lord and wake up at the end of my life in hell and the lake of fire? Absolutely, of course. Because that's the reality of their doctrine. And I have seen that firsthand from the mouth of my previous Calvinist pastors. That it is possible that I could have been faking it the whole time out of the deceitfulness of my own heart. And so you really can't know. You really can't know until the day you die. Here's the biggest issue that I have with that, on top of it just being blasphemy. It erases any personal accountability for your actions. If you really think about it, this whole system, this whole false system removes any personal accountability that you have because if God has determined all things, if he has truly determined all things, then he has determined that this would occur. He has determined that you would be saved and this other person wouldn't. He has determined that you would deceive your own heart to the end that you believed and lived an entire life as if you were a Christian and end up in hell in the end. He has determined that because out of that, he receives honor and glory from it because he has determined it. That is where this goes. And that is the honest conclusion. And there are many Calvinists who say, well, no, 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 I don't, I don't really believe that. Well, if you don't believe that, then you don't believe any of it. Because that is the reality. When you start to follow this doctrine all the way through, one stacks on top of the other all the way through. Because I'm so totally depraved that I can't save myself. So if I can't save myself, God must save me. Because I'm so wicked and so totally depraved. And if God is the one that has to save me and has nothing to do with me, well, then I don't even need to really even pray a prayer of salvation. He just saves me. There are so many Calvinists, when you go back and you read some of the Puritans, that there is never a written testimony that they ever called upon the Lord to save them. And yet, somehow they belong to God. It's crazy. It is crazy. Some, some people, and, and maybe they just didn't write about it. I'll give the benefit of the doubt. Maybe, maybe they never mentioned it. Maybe they never wrote about it. But there are some God-fearing men who appear to have been a part of God's family, born again, that have never had a written testimony of them coming to a point where they were a sinner and called upon the Lord to save them. Because they were Calvinists. They had an experience of some kind. And all of a sudden, their mind has now been enlightened into the things of God. 
That always throws up red flags for me. But it is possible for someone to just deceive their own heart into thinking that they were completely fine and then end up in the end and there's no accountability because you know what? Maybe God just made me as a vessel fit into destruction. Remember that video from last week? Maybe he just did and that's just something I'm going to have to deal with. Terrible. How terrible. And that is the doctrine of Calvinism. That is the false doctrine of Reformed theology. And so in the future weeks, I want to talk more specifically about how do we earnestly contend for the faith. Next week, my dad's going to give a personal testimony. He's going to talk about how he's dealt with Calvinism in his life and things that he had worked through um, because he was the pastor of the church where a lot of these things that I was taught of my pastors existed. And so he's going to talk about that next week, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has to say next week on that, on that matter. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It brings great clarity. And we need to believe your book above anything else. And so, Father, we want to thank you for the assurance that you bring through just believing your words despite our feelings, despite how we might think on any given day. We can just go to your word and say, what do you think about this? And so, Lord, I pray that we would not take that for granted. In the midst of this crazy world that is really looking for stability, looking for just any semblance of something that's sound, I pray, God, that you would use us, that we would be not only just a voice of reason, but a biblical voice, being able to minister the truth to this world because there are people that are searching. And as things get worse, there's gonna be people that are gonna be searching more and more. I think about even the opportunities that Derek Thomas is having in the Ukraine. Because of the unsettling events of of all the conflict over there, the, the open doors that are just coming his way day in and day out while he has the opportunity to be there. And the men that are there each day gathering people together and ministering and sharing your word and sharing the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would give us great boldness, not because of who we are, but because of who you are and because of what your words are. Those are the things that give us the source of great confidence in this world. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use us and help us to see maybe there's things in our life that we need to to shore up, to be more equipped, to to be able to minister better. I pray that we'd look at those things and be honest about it so that we would allow you to have your way inside of us so you can be honored and glorified properly. So Lord, I pray we leave here just looking at things different, that we would have a heart for people and that we would be more in tune with your spirit and with your word and that you would use us however you want. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.